following message is from the 2023 Leaders Summit in Louisville, Kentucky. For more information on Harbor Network, please visit www.harbornetwork.com. To die for. This sushi is to die for. The Porsche 911 convertible candy apple red. That's a car to die for. Taylor Swift. (laughs) Field level Taylor Swift era's concert tour. Sitting next to Travis Kelsey and his mom, Donna. That's to die for. To die for. That's what the Apostle John's description of the new heaven and the new earth makes me want to do. But more than for sushi, more than for cars, and more than for concert tickets, far more. To die and then live forever in a place where there is no more war, no more folk unhoused, no more food insecurity, no more neighbor across my street who was disabled in World War II and hated all Japanese, sending us unwarranted threatening letters and phone calls and aiming his gun at his son, my son, and me. No more. That would be heavenly. We have gotten so used to a sinful world that it is just hard to imagine fairness, rightness, straightness, truthfulness, integrity being the norm. Let's be clear, though. This is not wishful thinking. This is the dream that does come true. Life now is not as good as it gets. For followers of Jesus, it's going to get better, much better. The Lord Jesus gives the Apostle John a sneak preview of heaven. Would you please stand as I read God's word? And the reason why I want you to stand is because this passage is just pure worship, and I want you to be three feet closer to heaven (laughs) when I read this. So your hands are three feet closer to heaven, and your voice is as loud as it could be. So I invite you, however is your style, to worship that as I read the word of the Lord to the Apostle John, found in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8, that you worship. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be what? No more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. What things? All things. Also he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. And those who conquer will inherit these things. I will be their God. They will be my children. This is the God, friends, who will make all things new. But because, but because the new heaven and the new earth will be where purity and light reigns, it's not going to be for everybody. So we read on. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This verse doesn't play well in our culture that wants God, if he exists, to be nice and accepting of everything and everybody. But we simply cannot take our mental scissors and snip it out of the Bible because Jesus himself said it. So he said, I am making all things new. All things new. Not all things refurbished. All things new. You can be seated. I have no idea what that's going to look like But the God that I have followed for the past 54 years never promised me all things new in this life. But let me tell you what he did give me. He did give me and has given me and is giving me an unbelievable, unforgettable, rich beyond material riches life. And I think how much better will be all things new. Last night we sang, if you've ever questioned what heaven sounds like, if you've ever wondered what heaven looks like, just let it fill the room. Wasn't that wonderful last night singing that? We have an amazing future down the road. But we have to ask, what does that have to do with how we live in the here and now? I'll tell you what, everything. It means everything. Boise Gospel Church, are you here? Even if you're not, it means everything to you back in Boise. (laughs) City on a Hill, Brookline, in Roxbury, Mass. What does it mean? Everything. Summit Church, Espanol, Fort Myers, Florida. What does it mean? Sojourn Midtown, ah, you know what it means. 
What we do in church should have a remarkable resemblance to what we're going to be doing in heaven. Somebody needs to write a book about this. Now, why? Why should we do justice? Let me suggest three reasons. The first of three reasons is this. We struggle for justice in the here and now because it points to the there and later. The New Testament connects human history with the new heaven and the new earth. Paul describes God's cosmic plan of redemption in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. He explains in that passage that God intends to restore all things, whether in heaven or on earth, in other words, everything in the created order to its intended wholeness. For me, this is the most compelling argument to do justice. When he said to the Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus' prayer was also a call for us to do heavenly things right here, right now. The Hebrew word for justice is almost synonymous with righteousness or straightness. So when we do just things, we demonstrate the rightness and the straightness that the new heaven and the new earth will fully embody. Secondly, we should do justice because God's own heart so strongly beats for justice, so should ours. God created this world with rhyme and with reason. When Adam and Eve chose to listen to a voice other than God's, it set in motion a rebellion against creator and creation that has been going strong for thousands of years. That rebellion has brought us famine, widespread poverty, natural and unnatural catastrophes, destructive wars, and horrid acts of violence. Our creator, though, is no cosmic deist. He's no celestial clockmaker where after constructing a great machine, he just lets it tick away, unattended, while he runs off to start new ventures with other universes and planets. And then he ups the ante to those who say they belong to him, but don't act like responsible family members. This is God's word to us from Amos, chapter 5. I hate despise your religious festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream." Put this in modern terms, it comes out something like this. If you don't have my compassionate heart and my just values for all people and my creation, get lost. Shut down your churches and fellowships because I am not showing up. 
your praise songs are bouncing off the ceiling. Instead, do just and right things. That will show you that you are in my family. When we think and we feel more like Jesus, we will not, we cannot read about human trafficking in our own city or watch the horrible news about the genocide of the Rohingya in Myanmar with nonchalance or disdain. When God's heart breaks for the fallenness of his creation, so should ours. And those who follow Jesus are key players in God's reclamation project. When we, both, when we do justice, we are both getting people ready for the future kingdom, and we are reflecting his values and his heart into this present world. What an enormous task and a wonderful privilege we have. Thirdly, we do justice because it authenticates our verbal proclamation that Jesus loves everyone. Christians regularly get raked over the coals for talking a good game, but living a poor one. Evangelism and doing justice go together. Evangelism points people to God, and doing justice demonstrates his care for them. The person who builds a house for the poor and the person who explains saving faith in Jesus to the new owner should often be one and the same. I want to close with a story. It's actually my story. I'm venturing that many of you have had something that has happened in your life or you've witnessed something in the life of someone near and dear to you, or you've turned on the news to learn of something that has gone terribly, horrifically wrong, and you ask, why God? How could you let that happen, God? Or God, I'm, I'm trying, but I just can't see you in this. Where are you? It's the question however you phrase yours, that keeps God at your arm's length. Can we truly trust God when the chips are down if we're holding him at arm's length? Here's what happened to me. In the spring of 1942, no, I wasn't born yet, 120,000 Japanese Americans on the West Coast were sent to 10 prison camps in desolate parts of the U.S., the last camp didn't close until 1946. I had 43 grandparents, parents, aunts, uncles, older cousins imprisoned in four of these camps. Their crime, they looked like the enemy we we're going to war against, the nation of Japan. The US government was afraid that their loyalties were with the enemy, not with the country where they were raising their families and many were American citizens. In retrospect, history has shown us this was a colossal mistake by the U.S. government, one of its worst ever. Japanese culture is a shame-based culture. When one member of the community does something great, the whole community internally, subconsciously, shares the credit and the glory. Can anyone say, Shohei Otani? 
when a member of the community does something bad, in the same way, the whole community is shamed. Now, imagine the shame, shame times 120,000, when the whole community on the West Coast was rounded up for nothing but this, looking like the enemy. I was raised in a household in Northern California. Like many Japanese households in the 50s and 60s on the West Coast, there was this heavy, invisible blanket of shame that covered every aspect of our lives. Something awful happened between 1942 and 1946, but growing up, we weren't told. We could only speculate. It was too painful, too shameful for the Issei, the first generation, and the Nisei, the second generation, to share with my generation, the third generation, the Sansei, what actually happened. It wasn't until I got to college and books were written that I learned what happened in those prison camps. In most Japanese-American households, those who came out of the prison camps couldn't or wouldn't discuss what it was like because it was just too painful. The word for the Japanese-American community coming out of the camps, two words. Shigata kanai, it means it could not be helped. And you just go with it. The other is giri, it means duty or obligation or even the burden of obligation. I was raised Buddhist. I come from generations of Buddhists, both in this country and in Japan. When I made the decision my senior year of high school to stop following the Buddha and instead follow Jesus, my stepmother told me that I had to leave the home. I lost my position as the oldest son. I had two younger brothers, and that's the, the highest position you can have is being the oldest son. I lost my birthright. My stepmom told me, you're no longer number one. You're no longer number two. You're no longer number three. You no longer have a number. For my stepmom, I was betraying both my Japanese and my Buddhist heritage. In her mind, Christians put her behind barbed wire. In her mind, all white people were Christians. So in her mind, I was now taking sides with the enemy. With this line of thinking, you could see why she kicked me out of the house. Once a well-meaning white Christian friend told, um, of my mom's told her that she was going to go to hell. My mom's response, if heaven is filled with people like you, I'd rather be in hell with my friends. In college, I began asking hard questions. Is mom right? The ultimate question I had to ask, did God imprison my people? And if he did, how could I worship and follow a God like that? So here's my short answer. After a process of studying the scriptures, after reading countless books about the decisions that led to the prison camps, and reading what happened in camp, and finally being able to talk to some relatives who were finally able to talk, about what living in camp was like for them. And for reasons I'll never know until I meet him face to face, God allowed the government to imprison Japanese Americans. 
As I've combed through the scriptures, it's packed with story after story of how God walked with people in the darkest times, in the most treacherous places. I could only conclude one thing. If God's nature doesn't change, if the God of scripture is the same God between 1942 and 1946, then Jesus was in those 10 camps. He was helping my 43 relatives and 120,000 others survive the camps. He didn't spare them imprisonment, but God was there in Thule Lake, in Minidoka, in Roar, in Amachi, in the Heart Mountain, in Manzanar, in Jerome, in Poston, and Gila River. He was there in those camps. And when I realized God did not imprison my people, I was liberated to worship him much more fully. He could be trusted. But I had to go through that. Now, I have to offer this P.S. about my mom. She died in 2014. She was a Buddhist until her last breath. But six months before she died, I was speaking at a conference for Japanese-American Christians about 40 miles, 40 minutes away from my mom's home. And I decided, why not? What do I have to lose? So I asked her to come hear me speak. She immediately accepted my invitation. I then, I thought, I'm gonna roll here. I then invited my siblings and an aunt and uncle and all but one of them, when they heard mom was coming, they wanted to be there with her. I had the privilege of introducing mom to the entire conference. Is the picture up of her? I told the, 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 the camp that she was turning 90 in a few days. Would they sing happy birthday to her? And my mom, she had this rose queen wave, and she just was eating it up. These people like me. They really like me. And you should see the joy in her face as 500 Christians wished her, the Buddhist, a happy birthday. When mom died, I was asked to speak at her service. We had come a long way from her kicking me out of the house. In her final years, we could both say to each other something that Japanese Americans rarely say to each other. I love you, Mom. I love you, Paul. Now, if she just had added number one son, I love you, (laughs) it would have been perfect. I still really miss her deeply. So back to the Japanese prison camps. Let me ask you, What might your prison camp be? What keeps your God at arm's length? Is there something in your people's history that wounded your community so deeply you just aren't sure God can be fully trusted and embraced? Or perhaps you or a loved one was treated unjustly and you can't fathom how a good God could let that happen. As you try to do on earth or in church, as how things are done in heaven, don't be afraid to tackle your personal prison camp. He wants to have that heart-to-heart talk with you about it. 
What will your first question be when you meet the Lord Jesus face to face? Will you ask if a loved one made it to heaven? Will you ask him to explain 9-11 or the Holocaust or George, George Floyd? I'm still working on my top five questions to ask Jesus' list. But last night, as I reached into my goodie bag from the conference, I did come up with question number 53 for Jesus. Will I need this corkscrew in heaven? (laughs) 